Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They are collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then the next one is really Romans 14, 10 through 12. The scripture's right. It's just the reference that's wrong. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. The word of the Lord. If you've been with us for the last number of weeks, you know that we're preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find ourselves at the conclusion of that series and at the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Whenever a writer of any sort says, you know, now in summary, or the conclusion of all the matters is this, and there's a colon, then underline the next sentence. It's a pretty important one. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Um, the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, this wisdom handed to us by our Father, fear God and obey his commands. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are um, in desperate need. We're in desperate need uh, of this command, this reminder, but even more so of changed hearts. And you say that you provide both of those through the power of your word, through Holy Spirit working through your word. And so we ask that you would do just that this morning. Would you make us men and women who fear you and obey you? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. I want you to find somebody near you who has a diamond. Like, look around. You don't have to... But look. See if you can see with your own eyes a diamond. Can you look at it? If it's on you, just hold it out. That's great. If it's next to you, like turn around and look. If you can't, if you're not actually looking at it, there's a lot of them. You can do this. There you are. Okay. What did it take for that to get on your finger? (laughs) It did. A whole lot. Thank you. And one aspect, I bet Matt is speaking of the, the monetary cost to get there. Maybe the relational cost. I don't know. I'm not speaking for Matt. I'm not trying to speak for Matt. But it's probably the relational cost. No, um, so, yeah, the monetary cost is a lot. Rachel's Diamond took exactly what I earned in an entire summer working at Alpine Camp for Boys, which is not much, but <laughs> it all went in one direction. 
Well, what did it take for that diamond to get there? This, that diamond started as a lump of carbon hundreds and hundreds of miles below the surface of the earth. What did it take for that carbon to become what you see in front of you? You can yell this out. Pressure, right? Immense pressure. Like things that you, can't con- you cannot comprehend the amount of pressure required. To change something to, to, at the molecular level. What else did it require? Heat, right? Deep below the surface of the earth, this carbon and, encountered unimaginable heat and pressure that is, uh, that's not like anything that we have on the surface of the earth. That's how much is required to change that carbon into, and changes the, the way the molecules connect to each other, so now it's a diamond instead of a lump of coal or whatever it was. And then what had to happen? It's 100 miles, 100 miles below the surface of the earth. Yeah, well... This is a hard, so we have no things that can dig hundreds of miles under the earth. So it needed a volcano, you know, again, like hundreds of atom bombs worth of energy it took, right? That's how big these volcanoes are, to get that diamond from 100 miles below the earth's surface up to the surface. And then it took the digging, right? Somebody had to create machinery and do all this work, and then they dug and dug and dug and found this thing. And then it took someone who had devoted his or her entire life to understanding how to shape and polish this thing. Okay, that's, what, that's the effort that it took. You know what else about this thing? I mean, look at it. It is the hardest naturally occurring substance in the world. The only thing that can cut a diamond is another diamond. The only thing that can polish a diamond is another diamond. It is almost like unworldly how hard that thing is, right? This thing existed, what you have on your finger existed so far back. Like your earliest ancestor wasn't even conceived in another person's mind when this diamond existed. And when you are, are gone and your body is dust, that diamond will still be here for long afterwards, And now look at it, if it can catch some light. Look at the way it sparkles. Look at the way it twinkles and and changes and refracts the light in such a gorgeous way. This thing is like otherworldly. It's like this mystical star that somebody said you could wear around. That, that is the beginning of fear. What we just did, when we meditate on something like that, the glory, the, 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 um, the, the, the density, the hardness, the, the beauty, all the different facets of how, how wondrous that diamond is, that is the beginning of fear, of fear of something, in the way the Bible talks about it, of being captivated by its beauty and power, its permanence. And that's what our passage commands us to do. To fear the Lord, fear God, and out of that, obey his commands. So this, um, this, this book, Ecclesiastes, which I've said before, I had always hoped to never need to preach out of. Because uh, it is a difficult book, <clears throat> and it confronts some of my most cherished uh, avoidance issues. 
And uh, so because the book of Ecclesiastes circles around this theme of yours and my imminent death. It circles around this theme again and again. Life is, uh, it says vanity often, um, a vapor. Life is a breath, like steam coming off of a boiling pot. It's there, but then it's gone, and nobody knows where it went. Ecclesiastes wants us to to remember that death is coming, that I will end one day, that everything that I've worked for and built and saved will come to nothing when I die. I won't carry any of it past death. He wants us to remember that. And it comes back to that theme again and again and again. And wants us to ask, what does it mean? How must I live with the end affecting the present? How should I live? How should I live if the end is death and I won't carry anything with me? How does that affect the way I live today? And that's one of the very basic messages of Ecclesiastes. Okay, but if we leave... The, the teacher who's compiled this, if we leave him there and say that's his message, live in light of death, which can produce a lot of wisdom, right? Teach us to number our days aright that I may gain a heart of wisdom, says the psalmist. Um, we start to think about what's, what's going to carry on after me. What can I leave to people? What kind of legacy of character? Uh, what do I, when I go to a funeral and I see somebody in the casket and I think I'm going to be there one day, what do I want set at my funeral? That can really change the way you live right now, and that's good. But if that's all we see, that, cl- that, that life is this closed circle, and nothing gets out of that or into it, and nothing carries on after that, if that's all we see, then we become the uh, welcome to the geopolitics of the 20th century, where the worst atrocities in human history were committed by people who believed exactly that that life is a closed circle. We come from nothing. We go to nothing. There's nothing of value outside of what I can do right now and get right now. The worst atrocities were committed by a-religious people, people who, who claim there is no religion, there is no God. And so that's why our writer is careful to bring in over and over the truth, the existence of God into this discussion that God gives us the work that we have to do God gives us enjoyment of of good material things God gives us relationships those are gifts of God and we can use them in accordance with that and then here he says not only that we should fear God and obey his commands which he also gave us he gave us instruction and guidance but he says also for God will judge He will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And so, and so we take this, these two ideas, death is, I mean, death is coming absolutely with a hundred percent certainty. Death is coming for you and for me. And God is going to judge every deed. He's going to lay open every heart and assess what has been done and why it has been done. And our writer says, those knowing that leads us to, to fear God, to be in awe of him and obey him. 
I'm glad he told me what to do with that knowledge, fear and, I mean, death and judgment, because naturally, I would not do that. Right? Naturally, you and I, I, I think one of the most uh, obvious answers to this is to be afraid. That's terrifying. That death is the end. There's nothing more. And, then, and that God is going to judge every, every activity, every thought, word, and deed. He's going to judge the secret intentions behind them. Have you ever taken one of these personality tests? I asked this question at Lula Lake, and they were like, <laughs> I bet the average person at Lula Lake has taken one if they were made to in a job interview. And the average person here at Durham has taken four to six. That's my guess. <laughs> I'm just throwing that one out there. Personality test, and you take it, and you answer all these questions, and at the end, it tallies up your results, and it gives you like, Hey, your personality type is this, and here's what you probably use the kind of things you're into. You know, you're the type of person that really likes to um, have a good time with your closest friends and family on a Friday night because you like to serve them. So you're probably cooking the food and, and cleaning up afterwards so that you can be with the people you love. And then on Saturday, you like to relax with a good book and deep thoughts. And you're like, that is me. That is me. I'm so well-rounded love me but then you get to the next part you know the next part your personality under stress you know they all have that right here's your kind of natural and here's when you're not at your best self or not living out of your true self your personality under stress it says something you know like it uh it gives you uh these ideas of what may happen like when you're experiencing stress you'll likely respond by alienating those who love you most by making a weapon of their deepest fears What you use to destroy their self-worth and prop yourself on a wobbly throne of cruelty and (laughs) self-deceit. That is me. That is me. Oh, I do that. When we live, when this idea of this truth of death and God's judgment produces in us fear, that's the way we live. Right? We live in this like awful version of ourselves that uses control to get what we want, to secure ourselves. When we live in fear, you know, our passage says this, that uh, to fear God and keep his uh, commandments, this is great. For that, the next line says, for that is the whole duty of man. Okay, uh, which is a great translation. It means very similar to this. The literal translation is, for that is the whole of mankind. That is all of what it means to be a human. That is the fullness of human life. When I'm terrified, I'm certainly not that. I'm certainly not a wholly alive human. When I'm afraid of judgment and death, and I cling to what I can get now, and I manipulate the people around me, right? Fear, that terror which naturally arises from knowing that there's death coming and judgment coming too, does not produce a fully alive human. The other part of this, though, that we can do is, uh, is avoidance, which I think is, pro- is just a derivation of fear. It's just saying that's way too real and I cannot deal with that. So I'm going like, to distract myself in a number of ways which I think is probably pretty prevalent in our age because we have so many easy distractions. I was driving um, on uh, I-24, 
uh, towards 75 near the ridge cut the other day. And there's this billboard up that's been there for a while. And it's a, it's a billboard about supporting disabled veterans. Have you guys seen one of these? So I don't really know what the word said because I looked up and looked away real quick. There's a gentleman on the billboard with two prosthetic hands that are hooks. Then a mouth that is out, that's kind of, you can tell it's out of place somehow. And I was driving along and I glanced up at that and I thought, I don't, no thank you. And uh, in just a moment of kindness, I think the Holy Spirit uh, tapped me and said, why are you so uncomfortable with that? Why are you so quick to look away from that? Uh, You know, this gentleman has prosthetic hands, which means that somebody's got to dress him and feed him and take him everywhere he goes. I don't want to deal with that. You know why? Because one day somebody's going to have to dress me and feed me and take me where I don't want to go. The first part of chapter 12 is an extended poetic meditation on the process of aging and eventual death. And it is a little bit horrifying to me. But good. We need to, I need to see that. I don't want to see that. I don't want, because his limitations remind me of my own. That I'm not going to be, uh, that, that, that my body, even now as a nearing 40-year-old man, is starting to decay. It's starting to break down. And one day it will. I don't want to face that. I don't want to face that I'm limited, that, that, I'm, that I'm finite. That makes me terribly uncomfortable. And what's more, I look at that and I think, why did that have to happen? That's so unfair. Why does this guy have to live that way? It's the one life he has, the one time that he's going to exist in that, you know, in that form on this earth, right? And he has to live that way with prosthetic hands. I don't have a judgment of God that's big enough for that. I don't have a God who's big enough to deal with that. And so I have to avoid it. I have to push it out. I can't look at that billboard. It brings all those things rushing in on me, even if I can't name them. I can't look at him because I can't keep the end of death and judgment rightly in the present. I fear or I avoid Because I can't look at that end. I can't rightly keep it in this moment. But there was one who could. There's one who did all of his life. He kept death and judgment always before him, all his life. At Jesus' first miracle at uh, the wedding in Cana, you remember what he does? You can shout it out. What's his first miracle? At the wedding, water into wine, right? So he's at this party, and this is an easy one too. Who is there with him? Because she comes to talk to him. His mom, right? So he's at a wedding near his hometown. His mom is there, which means what? Who else is there? Everybody he loves. He's at a party with his closest friends. He's having a great, he's having a party with the people who know him and love him best and whom he loves and knows. That's the setting. His mom comes to him and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And what does he say to her? He says, uh, woman, why do you involve me in this? My time has not yet come. And you're thinking, what, the, what does that even mean? Why would you go through that if you're just going to do the water and the wine thing later? 
Do you know what that means? My time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come. Everywhere else in the book of the John, in the book of John, when the hour, when his hour is referenced, it's talking about the cross. It's always about the cross. And so he says to his mother, at this moment, when we're talking about wine, I'm thinking about that day. I'm thinking about my death and the judgment that will be poured out on me. Psalm 78 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This image of the wrath of God as a cup of wine that the wicked have to drink all the way is a common image in the Old Testament to describe God's judgment against wickedness. And Jesus, everybody else is enjoying the cup of feasting. And Jesus is thinking about the cup of wrath that he'll have to drink. Because on the cross, he does drink it, doesn't he? He says, I thirst. Our scriptures tell us that they lifted to his mouth wine for him to drink. Because he lived in light of his death, his coming death, And the judgment that would be poured out on him, not not the ultimate one day later judgment, but your judgment and my judgment that is due for every thought, word, and deed, secret and known, every wicked thing he took on himself. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I Never have to. And more than that, it's not, it's not just avoiding wrath as if we were a town that devoided the flash flood waters and now they're gone, and, but we still have to go to work the next day. Like not, that's not all that happened. We didn't just avoid God's wrath because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that um, on the cross, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a putting away of wrath and it's an extending of love, an extending of righteousness, right standing before God that we never have to question and wonder about ever again. Am I good enough? Do I belong? Do I measure up? That's what Paul means later in Romans when he says, there is no such thing as condemnation for you. It doesn't exist anymore, that judgment against you. So what do we do with that? Psalm 130 says of God, because you have forgiven me, therefore I fear you. This forgiveness, this grace of extending righteousness to us by Christ Jesus creates fear, a right fear in us, an awe, a reverence like the awe that we feel for a diamond, except magnified. A number of years ago, y'all remember the uh, Lord of the Rings movies were made. And one of the actors, Christopher Lee, uh, he played uh, Saruman. And uh, he was being interviewed. And one of the things he said in this interview was, uh, I've always been a big uh, Lord of the Rings fan, and Tolkien is the author of of Lord of the Rings, and he's, he said, one time when I was young, when I was very young, I had the opportunity to meet J.R.R. Tolkien. 
And as I approached him, my knees began to shake. And I had this impulse to, to, to kneel before him. See, that's a love fear, right? A, a, a longing to, to honor and reverence the object of our affection. Somebody who's beyond us, who's bigger than us, who's greater than us, who's more wondrous and beautiful, who's more permanent. That's a love fear. That knowing our God, that looking at our judgment, having taken place on the cross, can bring about the fear of the Lord and a joyful obedience. There is no condemnation. And so I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to walk around as the worst version of my manipulative, controlling self. I don't have to be afraid of that anymore. I can be uh, generous and lavish with, with my time and my, my treasures. And I don't have to avoid it anymore. I don't have to look somewhere else when loss and suffering seem too heavy for me. I know that on the cross, Christ took the wrath and gave me the approval. And he cemented for us that one day all those things will come untrue. That he will fix everything that's wrong and that every evil deed will come to account. Oppressors, abusers. It will all come to account. So I don't have to avoid that anymore. I can let my heart be enlarged. Let my understanding, my love of my God be enlarged through looking at that suffering. That's why fearing God and keeping his commands is the whole of humanity. It is what it means to be fully human. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The fear of the Lord comes from seeing and savoring, like we looked at that diamond and considered it. But we look, we see, and we savor the cross of Christ that puts away fear that assures us of acceptance. Will you look to the cross and become fully human? I hope you will. Amen.